there are children here that need to go to children's church, you are dismissed with the staff. You can go downstairs. Uh, looks like they already went, so that's good. That's good. Uh, when my wife and I were married, uh, I didn't realize that I was uh, marrying into a family of uh, Scandinavians who had a little bit different uh, Christmas traditions than I was used to. And so the Anderson clan, uh, uh, as long as I can remember, and uh, ever since I've known them, have had a Christmas Eve gift exchange. And uh, I was mistakenly, I, was, I misunderstood what the purpose of that was. I thought a gift exchange was they would give me a gift and then I would go exchange it at the store for something I really wanted. And... Uh, uh, so there were some good times there. But I was thinking about uh, Christmas now that we're a couple of days past the celebration uh, and thinking about what was some of the gifts that you received. What are the most memorable gifts in your life that you've ever received? I think of when I was very young, I received a Superman glider. It was Superman, a plastic Superman. His cape were the wings, and there was a rubber band launcher, and you could shoot him out there, and he would fly around for a little bit. Uh, before he crashed to the earth, and finally I remember his wings broke off. But that was one of my favorite gifts, but it didn't last long. It seems like uh, the gifts we receive, uh, there are a few that are really memorable, aren't they? And yet uh, it is a special time of year for us, and uh, some of those best gifts disappear in our memories. And yet there are other gifts that are more important that don't, don't lose their luster, that don't lose all of the joy and the purpose in them. And we're going to look at that today in Romans chapter 5, the passage that Keevan read for us. If you have your copy of Scripture, please turn to Romans chapter 5. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, there are some out on the desk in the lobby. And I'd encourage you to get a copy so you can follow along. Uh, but we come to this, and we remember those mornings, especially as children, if you're older than a child now, <laughs> And uh, we remember some of those Christmases where all the gifts were open and all the papers scattered all over, and, and yet there was still one left someplace, and uh, mom or dad or somebody would get it out, and it was such a surprise that there was another gift. Well, we come here to these, uh, this day a couple days beyond Christmas morning, and uh, there are some gifts that are ongoing and everlasting, and we're going to look at those today. And I would encourage you to consider these as the greatest gift that you've ever received and I find that I just needed a reminder again of what this great gift, this babe in the manger, what he has provided for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in chapter 5, verse 1, the Apostle Paul starts out, therefore, being justified by faith. Now, justification is, a, of course, a, a technical theological term. We use it, though. We justify things. We try to justify our own actions. We try to justify our purchases, whatever it may be in life. We try to make all of these things righteous. Well, Paul has been building an argument in the book of Romans. We're jumping into the middle of his argument here. But basically, he has demonstrated in chapters 1 through 3 that there are none righteous, no, not one. And there is the aspect that we cannot justify ourselves before an absolutely righteous, holy God. And that is the big problem of mankind, that we cannot, in our own selves, by our good works, be found righteous and acceptable before a loving, righteous God. Because how can imperfection dwell with absolute perfection? 
And we know God is absolutely perfect. If he were not absolutely perfect, he would no longer be God. Uh, So we come to this problem. Paul is presenting the issue in chapters 1 through 3. And then he talks about this issue of justification in chapter 3 of Romans, verse 21, all the way through the end of chapter 4. And that's why we see the therefore, because he's following up on the argument that he's made that we are justified by faith. And what does justification mean? Justification means in Scripture to be declared righteous, to be declared righteous. And the only way we can be declared righteous is by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gave us his righteousness. When he died for us, we received the gift of eternal life. It is called justification. Uh, Jesus Christ has provided his righteousness so that when God the Father looks at us, we are sinless, you know, positionally sinless, even though we know in our condition we do sin, we do have issues, and we do have problems, and yet, therefore, having been justified, notice that's past tense, we are declared righteous for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life. And so God declares the believer righteous on the basis of faith, and that's his whole argument here. Justification is a gift of God by the grace of God. Grace is that unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. No human being deserves grace. That's why it's grace, unmerited favor. It takes place the moment that you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you believe in what he has said, that he is true, and what he, who he is is true. When you believe in him for everlasting life, that is the moment you are justified, declared righteous. I look back in my own life. I can't pinpoint a day or a time, which is okay, but I know it was when I was 28 years old when I finally came to the realization that Jesus Christ had died for me personally and was providing and offering me everlasting life in heaven with him. And uh, he opened my eyes to the truth of what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And at that moment, I was justified. I didn't understand what that meant. Uh, It's very deep water in one sense, and yet there is an aspect that we are declared righteous. That's why later on in this same book, in Romans 8.1, the Apostle Paul declares to us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is an amazing statement. You know why there's no condemnation? Because we are seen in the blood of Christ. We are justified. The ground of our justification is the death of Jesus Christ, and it doesn't, we can't work for justification. We cannot work up our, our will to be justified purely. It's only what Christ has done, and the means we get that is by faith, technically by grace through faith. And so in these days uh, following Christmas and over the next uh, several days and months and this new year that's coming up, I want us to reflect on and remember what are the true gifts of Christmas, and they're listed here for us. There's eight of them, and justification is like the overarching or the umbrella, and in part of that are these eight gifts that come out in verses 1 through 11. I don't know if you've ever received a series of gifts where they have to be opened in sequence. You know, uh, one time I received a welder for Christmas, but it came in a number of boxes and they was numbered, and I had to open number one first and so on to put it all together at the end. And so uh, even though in number one I knew exactly what was coming, 
uh, but it was fun to look at all these gifts. And that's kind of the aspect here we have in Romans 5, 1 through 11, where we have this great gift of justification, and now we're going to see all the components of it or all the other gifts that come along with it. So as a Christ follower, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior for eternal or everlasting life, you are in possession of these gifts. First of all, gift number one is found in verse one, where we possess peace with God. Peace with God. Look at this. Therefore, having been justified with faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we possess peace with God. Back in Romans chapter 3, if you page back just a page in verse 11 of chapter 3, it says, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. We may not understand it or feel like it or in our experience recognize it, but we were enemies with God. And that is what Paul is declaring to us here. In verse 17 of chapter 3, he says, And the path of peace they have not known, because we were at odds with God. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And so the Apostle Paul has declared that we truly do not have peace. And of course, our whole environment, our world, our society, our culture reflects a lack of peace of humankind, ultimately not only with one another, but with God himself. And so this peace is not a subjective feeling, like I had a peaceful day the other day because of the snow and I stayed in the house and rested. It was very peaceful. That's kind of a subjective feeling, but this is an objective or subjective feeling. This is an objective status. Uh, You may not feel like this, but this is your position. Uh, In 1998, I uh, traveled to Indonesia for a short-term missions trip, and on the way back, we had a layover in Taipei, Taiwan. And uh, in that, uh, I think it's General Chiang Kai-shek Airport, large waiting room, and we were waiting. And at that time, there were some people who were flying as standby passengers. I don't know if they even do that anymore, but I can remember sitting there, and my missionary friend, Ron Rissey, and I had uh, confirmed tickets, you know, for the next leg of our flight. And so we were resting and reading and talking to people. But there were some around us who were jumping up about every five minutes and running up to the desk to check on the status of the flight and if it was full and if they had room to get on the airplane. And they were pacing back and forth and they were nervous. And we were able just to relax and rest. And that's the idea here. The difference between those two illustrations is the fact of confidence, of confidence. A standby passenger did not have the confidence they were going to be on the next flight that they needed to get on. Whereas those with confirmed tickets were, had great confidence and we could just sit back and wait for the flight to board. And so that is a reflection of this peace. It's an objective status, this peace with God. Uh, we would really want to know, uh, if I were to die today, if you were to die today, that we have the confidence that we have this objective status of peace with God that we will see him face to face, our Lord Jesus Christ, with no doubt. That's called assurance. That's the first part of this gift. The second part, <clears throat> in verse 2, we can enjoy, enjoy access to God, through whom also we have obtained. He's speaking of Jesus Christ. We have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Uh, Kevin's version has we have access, which kind of clarifies that Uh, that verse. 
And so we have this access to God in verse 2. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we have this great privilege. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints, remember, did not have direct access to God. They had to go through the priestly system, and the priest would go represent them to God in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. It's interesting that uh, probably when you were growing up, I know when I was growing up, when I was out playing or going to school or whatever we were doing, when I came home, I didn't have to ring the doorbell or knock on the door to get in because it was my father's house and I was part of the family. I could just walk right in. That is access. I possess the privilege of access to my home. Believers possess the privilege of an approach to God. You know, Christianity is the only faith system in the world with direct access to God. Have you ever thought of that? As you look at the world's religions, Christianity is a worldview, a faith system, which has direct access to the divine being that we worship. In the Old Testament, remember the tabernacle had uh, basically would shut people out. It had three entrances and three gates, and only the high priest went into the Holy of Holies at certain times during the year to represent Israel uh, before God. We have direct and immediate access to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Listen carefully as I read this. Since, therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The picture of the cleansing of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, which provides us with salvation. This babe in the manger that we celebrate at Christmas time is the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can enjoy this access to God. The third part of this gift is not only <clears throat> do we have peace and access, but we possess the hope of the glory of God. Look again at verse 2. Uh, we have this access and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. We possess hope. Now a hope, again, is not wishful thinking. Uh, every Wednesday, I don't know, I don't pay attention anymore, but every Wednesday night there used to be the Powerball numbers would come out in some states, I guess. And there were millions and millions and millions of people wishing they could win the Powerball lottery. And that's just wishful thinking. It's not based upon their objective status. It's not based upon any truth other than this thing called luck, which I don't believe there is such a thing as luck. Uh, but uh, there are a lot of people wishing, but hope is different. Hope is based on the truth that's revealed to us, and our hope is only as good as the object of our hope. Uh, Charles Dutton was a successful Broadway actor, and he starred in many New York plays over his uh, career. But it was not only so, uh, always so. Charles Dutton spent many years in prison, in prison for manslaughter. He was convicted of manslaughter. And one time he was being interviewed by a drama critic and asked him how he managed to make such a remarkable transition from a felon, from a prisoner, to a success on Broadway. And Charles Dutton answered, he said, unlike all the other prisoners around me, I never decorated my cell. He had the hope that he was going to be something more and have something better than what he was experiencing right that time. Dutton had resolved never to regard his cell as his home, 
And we too, as Christians, uh, even though we dig our roots down pretty deep in this life, we should never regard this as our final destination, as our home. We shouldn't accommodate ourselves to that. We can make a great difference in the world as we long for a better country, this heavenly home. And uh, that is hope. It is superabounding op- optimism on the assurance of what God has said is true. Uh, so we need to recognize that we possess, we're given the gift of the hope in the glory of God, which is an interesting statement. What is the glory of God? And that could be a whole sermon series right there. In the Old Testament, in places, it is a fearful thing. For example, in Numbers chapter 16, the glory of God moved through the Hebrew camp in judgment of sin. They cowered in fear for the glory of God. And Christ is coming again in the second advent. He's not coming as a baby, but in power, glory, and might. You can read Revelation about that. Uh, We have fallen short of God's glory in Romans 3.23. We are imperfect, we're weak, we're sinful creatures, We look forward to the day that when we will be glorified and and sin will be absent in heaven. Uh, But because of justification, Christ uh, entrusting in him for eternal well-being. Paul later writes in Titus chapter 2 verse 13 and says, He's looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Instead of dread for the Christian... There should be a great anticipation of joy in our hearts because this Christ child has provided us. He has justified us. We are declared righteous. So the third gift is we possess hope in the glory of God. Fourthly, we have triumph in trouble. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations or have rejoiced in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. We have triumph and trouble. That's the paradox of Christianity. When we read scripture, we see this great paradox that we can rejoice in trouble Affliction should bring about joy. Oftentimes, uh, we don't see how that works. And yet, in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, Paul writes, You have become imitators of us and the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Why can we rejoice in the midst of tribulation, of troubles, of suffering? It's because we know as Christians that everything that comes into our lives must first pass through the sovereignty of God. Remember, the sovereignty of God is defined as he is in control of all things at all times in all places for his purpose to glorify himself and for the good of his people. He permits these things for our good and his glory. John 14 declares that to us. Uh, If you've ever been to a fine arts museum, and especially one that has a lot of old art in it, uh, when I was a child, my dad made sure we went to the Denver Art Museum and all the museums around there to look at art and uh, objects uh, from the ancient world or from previous generations. At the time, I thought I was being punished, but now I am thankful that uh, he did that. Uh, But usually in every museum that has any quality things, there'll be a tapestry. 
And a, a tapestry is that woven uh, fabric that is, displays a picture. But if you look on the back side of a tapestry, uh, all it is is knots and strings hanging, and it makes no sense. It's all kind of just a blur of colors and strings and fabrics, and, and yet you come around the front side and you see the picture that the artist was depicting through this tapestry. And that's much like life for us is we are on the backside and we see all the strings and the tangles and the knots and the, and the, the picture that doesn't seem to make sense. And yet we know there's a place in the future where the master artisan who has created this plan, who is loving us and taking us through this life, will show us the picture, the beautiful picture of what this life meant. All of the struggles, the tribulations, the troubles, the suffering, the adversity will make sense then. Uh, God is not going to waste any of our tears. The purpose is to refine us. Job in the Old Testament in Job 23.10 says, He knoweth the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Purified, refined, Christ-like is what God is doing for us. There is superabounding optimism even in the midst of trouble. There is triumph in that. The fifth gift is that we have the love of God. Look at again at uh, verse 5 with me. Uh, the love of God which has been poured out within our hearts. And so we have the love of God. You know, love is such a misused word and term, it tends to lose its meaning. We tend to equate it totally with the emotional response to someone else. And yet love is really a decision, as the book says, and it tells us that it's poured out like a gusher from an oil well. Of course, the extreme example, the most perfect example of God's love for you is when Christ hung on the cross for you, willingly took our places on the cross of Calvary. And so when our hearts are broken, when our hearts are invaded, what comes gushing forth when the drill of suffering and pain comes in? Is it self-pity? or God's decisive love to remind ourselves of these gifts. The sixth gift we have, we are given the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Look at that again at verse 5. It says that this love has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Uh, There's no delay waiting for this gift. The Holy Spirit indwells you at the moment you have received Christ as your Savior. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 tell us this, John 14, 16, 18. There are some Christians who believe in the second blessing of the Spirit where you have to demonstrate to, that you have received the Holy Spirit by speaking in a foreign language or gibberish or whatever. But the Bible declares that the moment we believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. Uh, some people will say that the Christian life is really hard. I say the Christian life is impossible except by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us as believers. Because remember, our flesh is not redeemed yet. Our flesh is still sinful. There is this ongoing problem, Romans chapter 8, Paul defines it for us, that I don't do what I'm supposed to do and I do what I don't want to do. And he's, de- he's really describing that our flesh is in rebellion against God. We want what we want when we want it. You know, I want to satisfy my flesh, but yet the Holy Spirit is the one who guides us in the truth. He is our comforter. He is our teacher. He is the one who leads and guides us, and he actualizes the love of God in us. So we're given this great gift. We're not left alone. He is called the paraclete, and that is a Greek word, which means one who comes alongside and helps 
and comforts and gives us peace. And so we're given the Holy Spirit, uh, the sixth gift. The seventh one is we are rescued from wrath. Look down at verse 9. Verse 9 says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, in other words, our our righteousness comes because of what Jesus has done for us, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him, saved from God's wrath. Uh, There are some groups that teach that Christians will go through the great tribulation. We are in the church age now, and then there will be a tribulation when God's perfect holy wrath will be poured out upon the world, and following that will be the millennial kingdom. And there are some who teach that Christians will go through the tribulation, which when you read Revelation, it is going to be a very terrible time. And yet, uh, some people think that the great tribulation is like being in Florida in hurricane season. If we just put plywood on our windows and hunker down with our candles and our battery-powered radios and wait till it blows over, we'll be okay. But that's an unbiblical concept of the great tribulation because in Revelation chapter 6, verse 17, God tells us, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? Uh, that's a rhetorical question because nobody will be able to stand. In fact, when you read Revelation, those who are shaking their fist at God hide in the rocks of the mountains and ask God to pour the rocks down upon them just to get away from his wrath. And there's a promise that the church will be delivered in that day. So all you have to do is read verse 9 and then read verse 10 with it. Uh, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Think about it logically. If you have been disturbed by some who teach that Christians will go through this tribulation period, think about this. If God the Father was willing to give God the Son to die for us when we were enemies of his, don't you think that when we became his children, he will see to it that we will not taste of the wrath to come? Christ died to save us from that. That's a priceless treasure, saved from the wrath to come. That's why in Romans 8, 1, it says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because we are in Christ. The final gift we see here, of course, there are many more in the the book of Romans, but we have joy in the fact of reconciliation. Reconciliation is another one of those terms, but it means removal of the enmity or the anger between people and God. God is not anger at us. Joy is based on our spiritual position, so we exult or rejoice. We have received the reconciliation or the mercy seat. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, and God has reconciled us unto himself. He's removed this anger through the Lord Jesus Christ is our satisfaction. Remember in Luke 18, if you're familiar with the Gospels, Jesus tells of the account of the two men at the temple praying, There was a publican and there was a Pharisee. A publican, of course, is a tax collector. He was the lowest of the low. Uh, He was the scum of the earth uh, regarded by fellow Jews as a scum because he was collecting taxes for the, the Roman Empire. The Pharisee, when he prayed, he boasted of his good works and uh, how glad he was he wasn't like these other people. Uh, The publican or the tax collector stood away and he, he beat on his chest in mourning and he prayed, God, be merciful to me a sinner. And why did he beat upon his chest? Because he did not have access to the mercy seat. He had repudiated his nation and his God when he became this tax collector, this publican. 
He was an outcast, and all he could do was stand on the outside and cry out that prayer. Actually, the word for mercy is mercy seat, that place in the temple where every instructed Israelite knew there was blood sprinkled which gave him access to God. In our day, Christ is that mercy seat. He is the satisfaction for our sins. We do not have to cry out for mercy because God's mercy was fully and perfectly expressed when Jesus Christ died for you and died for me, was buried and rose again. Reconciliation produces joy. What a wonderful gift that is. And so we have all of these things, these eight things. We have peace. We have access to God. We have hope in the glory of God. We have triumph in trouble. We have the love of God. We are given the Holy Spirit. We are rescued from wrath. We have joy in the fact of our reconciliation. Remember Carl Sagan, uh, the scientist who used to have the the TV program on PBS. I think it's still on Nova. Uh, After he died, his wife, whose name is Anne Druyan, observed that the popular scientist and well-known agnostic maintained his skepticism to the very end. She was interviewed by Newsweek magazine, and she said, There was no deathbed conversion, no appeals to God, no hope for an afterlife, no pretending that he and I, who had been inseparable for these past 20 years, were not saying goodbye forever. When she she was asked whether Sagan had not wanted to believe, she replied, Carl never wanted to believe, he wanted to know. Uh, so that is a sad state of a man who missed out on the blessings and eternal life of God. And that is the issue here for us, isn't it? Is the fact that are we sure we're justified by Christ's blood? Look at verses 6 and 8 because justification is expressed for us there. Verse 6, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The proof of God's love, the extreme example. And so we have these eight treasures out of this portion of Scripture that are yours, and they do not fade, they do not break, they do not get stuffed away in a corner or a closet. Uh, or exchanged for a better gift. There are no better gifts. And so these are yours if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, There's a man named Bob Sheffield. He's on staff with Navigators. And uh, when he testifies of his story, it's an example and illustration of this justification. Before he became a Christian, Bob Sheffield played professional hockey in Canada. He was one of the enforcers. He was tough. He loved to fight and found himself uh, in jail one night after a barroom brawl. And uh, he was convicted and had a record. Uh, Then later on, after he became, he and his wife became Christians, they went uh, on staff with the Navigators and they were assigned to the United States to come down to the States to work with Navigators here in the States. And he applied, he applied through the government and through our government for landed immigrant status, which would allow him and his wife to continue their ministry here in the United States. But because he had a criminal record, his request was denied. And so they decided to apply in Canada for what is called the Queen's Pardon. Following thorough investigation, a pardon was granted, and he received the following notice in the mail. Whereas we have since been implored on behalf of the said Robert Jones Sheffield 
to extend a pardon to him in respect to the convictions against him. And whereas the solicitor general here submitted a report to us, now know ye therefore, having taken these things into consideration, that we are willing to extend the royal clemency on him, said, on the said Robert J. Sheffield. We have pardoned, remitted, and released him of every penalty to which he was liable in pursuance thereof. So from that time forward, any time that Bob was asked if he had a criminal record, he could honestly answer no. It didn't erase what had gone before and what he had acted upon, but his record was clean. The pardon meant he was released from any possible punishment for the crimes, and the record of the crimes themselves were completely erased. And that's the kind of pardon we have received in Jesus Christ. We are set free from the penalty and punishment when asked, the answer is no record, pardoned by the blood of Christ. For those who are in Christ are no longer under any condemnation. What a blessing, what a gift we have received as believers. And if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, if you've never trusted in him for your everlasting life, it says, by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And so it can be your gift today by receiving Christ as your Savior. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today.